So as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to turn to 1 John in chapter 3. 1 John in chapter 3, please. I want to read as I have been reading uh, the first 10 verses of this chapter. I, I want to take up primarily this morning, as you'll see, uh, beginning with, um, with verse 8 in our time of teaching and preaching. But uh, I want to read the whole section, First John in chapter 3. As we come to it, let's pray. Father, now our, our, our minds are turned to the word specifically. You've been filling us through the course of the morning, informing us by your word, even as we began with a great expression of the acknowledgement of your steadfast love. It's amazing that you're the one who created all that there is, and, and yet still you love us to come and defeat, as the scripture says, all of our foes, the steadfast love of the Lord. We're grateful. And you've loved us in such a way to give us your word too, and so we pray, again, thankful for it, that you would use it in our lives, and that today would mark a significant moment in our lives to enable us to, to live. So grant us this grace to listen, to hear, to understand, to, to, be, to believe, and to live out your powerful word. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 3, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when he but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now it's Advent season, and as I mentioned last Sunday, this is a wonderful Advent passage because it, it, it pulls out for us um, the Advents of Jesus, his second coming he discusses first, and then his first Coming As we said, it's not John's intention to provide us Advent texts necessarily, but he wants to make a point. And the point that he makes is crucial for us. We mustn't ever forget it. And, and the point he makes 
he makes by using the advents of Jesus as, as the ground for his case, as the foundation for his case, as the basis for telling us what he's about to tell us. He, he, he makes this point saying, because of the second advent of Jesus and because of the first advent of Jesus, there's something that's true. And what's true is that we're to live holy lives now. That as believers in Jesus, it's expected of us, it's necessary for us to live holy lives now. By holy, I mean lives that are separated from sin by God so that our lives may be lived in a way that's pleasing to God. So separated by God from sin so that we can live a life unto him, if you will. So we can live a life that's holy, that's pure. I don't know about you, but, but I, I, I listen to that and I go, I hope that's true. <laughs> it makes sense that it's true. I, I think it's true, but I look at my own life and I wonder sometimes, is this really true? I find holiness to really live a holy life to be a difficult thing at, at, at times with, with certain things in certain situations, sometimes with certain people. I, I, just, I, just, I, I know what I should do, and yet still I, I, I wonder because I don't always... Don't always do it. I read through the scripture, and I, I read that we're to live holy lives. And there, are, there are many passages throughout the scripture that list for us how we're to live. Uh, for instance, if you read Romans chapters twelve through fourteen, um, uh, many of the women in our church are studying Ephesians. So Ephesians four through six, uh, Colossians uh, chapter three. In fact, just quickly just to take a look at something in Colossians in chapter three. This is a passage I, I read often. I read it often at weddings, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, the apostle writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I like that. It tells me I'm supposed to do something, put on, but, but also gives me the foundation of that, that God has chosen me uh, and I'm holy that is separated out of the world by him and I'm loved. But then he says, because of that, here's how I'm to live. It says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I often use this text to preach at a wedding, and it's most often convicting of me as a husband. Do I really live this out as I should? Or as a father, have I really lived this out as I should? Or as a grandfather, have I really lived this out as I should? Or as a friend, have I really lived this out as I should? As a pastor, as a citizen, have I lived like this? And this is how I'm supposed to live. This is the life of one who's called by God to be holy. And so John says, well, let me tell you about the advents of Jesus that will help you. So he tells us about the second advent of Jesus. And he says, this is, this is your hope. A time will come when he'll come, Jesus will come, you'll see him as he is, and you'll be like him. No sin anywhere. 
All its effects gone. You won't be, you won't be tempted at all. That, that all that's true of Jesus in his character, in his moral character, in his love, be true of you at that moment in time. And that's our hope. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I say, yes, come Lord Jesus. But then he says, if this is your hope, if you hope like that in Jesus, then purify yourself as he's pure. So that's something to do today. And it's something that I need to be about, something that I need to be engaged in. Not apart from him, obviously. But he says, now, this is your life. Purify yourself. That is to strive to live, as the author of Hebrews says, a holy life. When you read these lists, don't just poo-poo them, but, but say, no, this is my life now. This is how I'm to live. Now, we mustn't get these things in the wrong order. That is to say, we begin by receiving life from the Spirit so that we can believe. And when we believe, we're justified. We're declared righteous by God. His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given to us and forgiven our sins. Now that that's true, it's necessary to live that out. So much so that John says, this marks you out as being a Christian. This is what gives you assurance, one of the things, that gives you assurance that you really do have eternal life. That you look at your life and you say, yes, I'm striving after holiness. I get it. I understand that's the life that I am to lead. And so the question then is, is that reasonable for us to think that we can follow that command to purify ourselves as he is pure? And John says, yes, it, 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 it is reasonable to think it. In fact, that's exactly how you should be thinking. And you should be thinking that way because of the first appearing of Jesus. Because he came, you see, to take away sins. And so it's inconsistent with being a believer to continue this life of sin, this life of disregard of God. That now you're to live in such a way, you see, as pleases and that's your heart's desire. You should be moving in that direction. And any sin should be interrupted. It shouldn't be consistent, persistent. It should be interrupted by confession and repentance and is seeking God through his word as to how you're to live, and by prayer and his spirit, and then striving after that which is right and good to do. So he says it's inconsistent with the life of a Christian because sin is lawlessness. That is having a heart that doesn't want to follow after God at all. That leads, of course, to judgment. But Jesus came to take away sin. He did by the cross. So that we can now live a holy life. There's no sin in him. So if we're in him, John's simply saying the logic of it is that it would be inconsistent to live a life of sin, disregarding the call of God to live a holy life. But now he's going to strengthen that whole argument. If you look in verse 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. You see, isn't this that it's inconsistent? He says you really can't. If you're really a believer in Jesus, you've been born of him. His seed lives within you. We'll talk about that in a minute. His seed lives within us so that we can't keep on sinning. 
So that if we do sin, what do we do? We acknowledge it, we confess it, we repent. Just what John tells us to do in chapter one. And so we desire then to to strive. So we put aside this life that's characterized by sin. And now we live a life that's characterized by obedience. Not just obedience, but I like to always put the modifier, joyful obedience. This is something that I know that I want to do because I know it's best to do, because I know it's good to do, because I know it's right to do, because I know ultimately this is my joy to obey the Lord. You know, I think I mentioned last Sunday in the second service, but not for you. I mentioned this, that oftentimes we make the expression that God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness, and that isn't quite true. He's interested in our holiness because he's interested in our joy. There's no joy without holiness. And so being interested in our joy, that God wants us to enjoy him forever, thus then, he's interested in putting away sin. Because if we don't put away sin, there's no joy, you see. So don't ever just make the expression, oh, he's more concerned about my holiness than my happiness. What you're thinking about is I'm going through a difficult thing now, and that's okay because God wants me to be holy. But realize that he doesn't want you to be miserable. If the discipline is difficult, it isn't that he wants you to be miserable. He wants you to be filled with joy. And he knows that once you put away sin and, 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 and follow him, then there's real joy. So that's his interest. Does that make sense to you? I can't tell because I can only see your eyes. Okay, there you go. And so then he says, all right, I've dealt with sin's power on the cross, but now I'm going to deal with its origins because Christ came to put away sin, yes, and he does that by destroying the works of the of the devil. Because you see, it's the devil that initiated all of this sin in us. Remember Genesis chapter 3, it began there. And, and we see the works of the devil. When God says, don't eat of this tree, if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. The evil one comes and says, no, no, eat of this tree. God didn't really say you would die, did he? And so we see the works of the devil right there. We see what he's trying to do. He's trying to destroy the creation of God, particularly to destroy the life of the crown of God's creation, human beings. So the evil one comes, you see, to to, to not give life, but to take it. That's why the scripture says that he was a murderer from the beginning. He comes to destroy. He comes to take life. And he does that through lies. And you saw in Genesis 3 that Eve and Adam bought into the lie. And so we all buy into the lie. And thus we're the devil's children now, if you will. We see the origin of it. Now sometimes people say, how can scientific people believe that there's a devil? In fact, a theologian of some note of a century ago, last century, um, Rudolf Bultmann um, Put it like this, 
He says it's impossible to use electric lights and surgical discoveries and at the same time believe in the New Testament world of demons and spirits. Yet I might say that Mr. Boltman was wrong because the scripture says, no, no, this is real. See? And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, in a very helpful book, um, a book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott, if you don't have it, if you're looking for something to put on your Christmas list, a book, put this one on if you haven't read it. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a new one particularly. Uh, probably a couple of decades, almost old now, but um, it's really good. The Cross of Christ. In one particular section, he talks about the conquest of evil, uh, Jesus destroying the works of the devil, and he lays it out in steps like this, and he says, it begins with the conquest of evil predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember that passage, that God curses the, the, the serpent, Satan, and says, one will come from the seed of the woman, will crush your head, though his heel will be bruised. So we see right then that the conquest of evil is, is predicted. Then the conquest of evil begins in the first advent of Jesus. And we, we see it immediately, right after the birth of Jesus. What happens? Well, Herod gets angry with the wise men for not coming back and to report to him where this child is. And so what does Herod do? Herod has all the little boys killed in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Who does that look like? the one who's been a murderer from the beginning, you see. And then we see, uh, even in the life of Jesus, that, 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 that he confronts demons who are in people, and they say, Holy One, what will you have to do with us? And we, we see Jesus healing, reversing the curse. We see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, dealing with the consequences of, of evil. We see in the preaching of the disciples of Jesus as they go out, they say, even the demons are subject to your name. We see Satan coming directly against Jesus to tempt him, to cause him to sin, to keep him, if you will, from going the way of the cross. We see even Peter trying to keep Jesus from going the way of the cross, and Jesus has to say to him, oh, get behind me, Satan, because he sees right through it. And we see the conflict. But then we see the conquest of evil achieved by the cross. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he, he destroyed the works of the devil. Turn to Colossians in chapter 3. And once you get to Colossians chapter 3, go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Middle of the sentence, but I think you'll get the gist. The apostle writes, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, this is the triumph of Jesus over our sin, yes, by way of bringing forgiveness because he canceled the record of debt, that is, our sins and the debt that was due because of them that stood against us with all of its legal demands by the law. He set it aside, he wiped it out, he nailed it to the cross, paid the penalty, you see, 
And then notice in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Not just simply the rulers and authorities of the day, the Romans, but, but the evil one. He, he, he stripped him of all, his, of all his honor and put him to shame. It's like he ripped off the medals off his uniform and, and, and cut off all the buttons and, and then paraded him through the streets and said, why are you afraid of him? He's been, he's been defeated. He triumphed over him. And you see, when he did that, he destroyed everything that Satan had over us. For instance, first and foremost, he destroyed the power of the law that at that point was a tool used by Satan to oppress us. And he could do that because the law condemned us. Our sin condemned us. And Satan can accuse us and hold that over our head and say, look, how can you say you belong to God? Or, or how can you even attempt to even go to him when you have this sin? If you, if you go to the law, look what happens. It, it condemns you as a sinner. You, you can't go to God. But then Jesus, you see, by way of the cross, destroys the sat- the Satan's um, work there to tyrannize us because Jesus then becomes our advocate, as John says in 1 John in chapter 2. And he defends us. And how can he defend us? He defends us by the basis of the cross, by his own blood. It's said, no, 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 no. That guilt has been atoned for. It's been taken. It's gone, wiped out. Satan stripped, you see, of his, of his power. It's a wonderful little expression in one of my favorite, I must say, hymns of John Wesley's. I'll just give you the line so you can be tortured by trying to think of what hymn it is for the rest of the day. He breaks the power of canceled sin. That's what we have here in Colossians 2. Our sin is canceled, it's wiped out, but its power is gone. Why? Because the guilt is gone. And Satan can no longer hold the law over us, you see. Jesus has taken, Galatians 3 tells us, the curse of the law, so that sin, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, will no longer have dominion over, over us. And of course, he breaks this work of Satan by breaking the power of the world over us, the world and all its enticements and all its glitter, trying to to allure us, saying, no, here's a way to live without God. Here's the way for your life to flourish without God. And, 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 And the cross destroys that, you see. The work of Christ destroys the power of the world over us. It's an amazing thing that we look at all that the world might have to offer us apart from Christ. And we look at the cross and we see all that's there and we say, no, 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 we're attracted to the cross. Why? Because there we see our reconciliation with God and we see home with God. And we hear the word of Jesus. What does it profit a person? To gain all of this, to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Apostle writes in 
Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I, and I to the world. In fact, we'll spend a good bit of time in a couple of months in chapter 5 in 1 John, uh, where John writes this in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Trusting in Jesus. Walking with him. The allurement, the attraction of the world. Fades away. He breaks this power of of sin, this enslavement to sin, as we said. He cancels its power. So he takes away the enemy's work in us to enslave us to our own sinful natures by causing us to be born again. And he takes away the fear of death. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, puts it like this. He says, since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, isn't that death doesn't make us sad. It isn't that death doesn't produce in us grief and loneliness and all of that. But as the apostle says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope because, you see, death doesn't have the final word. In fact, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, it's a wonderful passage. Verse, end of verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. See, what, what, what brings the sting to death is our sin, because sin brings condemnation. So this condemnation stings us when we die. Because of our sin. But Jesus has taken the stinger out. There's no more sting. There's no more condemnation. We don't have to fear death. Some have said that the Puritans obsessed about death and rarely talked about sex. Whereas we in our day obsess about sex and rarely talk about death. Why do we not talk about death? Well, all kinds of reasons may present themselves, but the gut level, the heart level reason people don't want to talk about death is because there's an awareness. It might be covered up deep, but there's an awareness of its sting. And Satan keeps us from thinking about it. But we don't have to be afraid of it as believers in Jesus. Because the sting has been taken out. Because of the cross. Because Jesus destroyed the tyranny of the devil against us. So if I could just go back to Stott's little analysis for a minute, that the conquest of evil is predicted in Genesis chapter 3. It begins at the first advent of Jesus. 
Uh, it's achieved at the cross. It's, it's announced at Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and it's extended through the church as we come with this message of the gospel, that there is this, this, this transformation from darkness to the kingdom of the Son of God in whom there is forgiveness of sins, that, that, that it's extended through us as we live it out. People see it. Oh, that's the reason for which Jesus came. Oh, I see evil has been destroyed because I, I see the church of Jesus Christ. I see believers in Jesus. I see people walking with him, following after him, you see. And then, of course, it's consummated as Jesus returns. I haven't much time, but notice verse 9. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. You see, John uh, does what biblical writers often do. They divide people into two camps, saved, lost, Life, death, forgiven, condemned. A child of God, a child of the devil. There was a time, you might remember, in the life of Jesus when he was talking to the religious leaders. And he, 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 he was talking to them, and they said they were children of Abraham, and then they said they were children of God. And Jesus said to them, no, 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 no. Your father's the devil. Because just like him, you won't believe in me. And so that's it, you see. And he says, for those who have been born of God, God's seed lives within them. Now you can study this, and I would urge you to, and you'll come up with the same conclusions that everybody has throughout history, which is we're not quite sure what it means, but it could mean this. It could mean that his word lives within us. Peter talks about God's word being this seed, this imperishable seed within us, and it lives in us, and, and what comes from this seed is the fruit of righteousness. It could be the Holy Spirit. John speaks of this anointing that we have, the Holy Spirit. It could be the gospel. John also speaks of the gospel that is this word that abides in us. It, it could be a reference to God himself living within us. John uses this uh, as well. For instance, in, John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him, you see. In fact, Jesus mentioned that on the night that he was betrayed. He was with his disciples, and he said, the Holy Spirit will come, and when he comes, the Father and I and the Spirit will make our home in you. Whatever, it means that God lives in us. Another book title, Henry Scrogel wrote a book you should read sometime when you have a long time. It's a short book, but it's long reading. Uh, it's entitled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Yeah, it's worth the price of the book right there. You don't even have to buy it. Just write that down. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That's what John is saying about us. He's saying, wake up. God's seed lives within you. This is who you now are. And I ask myself the question, well, how does this even help to know? Well, it helps to know, A, because it's true, and B, it helps me when I'm struggling with sin. Because, 
because I know a day is going to come when sin will be gone, and I know it isn't yet. I know that the penalty of sin has been taken, the power of sin has been broken, but sin still resides in the world in which I live, and even, even in me. And, 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 and so I realize now, for God's perfect purposes, that we live in this struggle for holiness. We strive for it. It brings him glory as we do that, so we do. And so it helps me to know, but it also helps me to know that it is great hope that I've really changed. Not because I've changed, but he's changed me. Because he's changed me, because he lives within me. Therefore, he says, now, when you read these passages, it speaks to you about how you to live. Don't just simply set them aside and say, oh, those are for really superstar Christians, or those are for somebody else, or I can do that later. No, no, no. Get after it now, though you really can. This is how you're actually to live. And when you find yourself not living this way, which I do, obviously, and you find me not living this way, I'm sure, too. I need to interrupt that with confession and repentance and to seeking the Lord to help me to be able to live this life through. Sometimes it's easy to get discouraged by the struggle of it. Sometimes I, I think, you know, God, if everything you say that Jesus did, he did, it shouldn't be this difficult. But then I read the Bible, and it keeps showing me that I'm to strive, that I'm to exert, that I'm to put to death these deeds that aren't consistent with walking with God. Very dramatic language, because it's a very dramatic thing in the course of our lives. But he says, during this Advent season, we should have great hope because Christ has come and Christ is coming again. Take a look. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. He took bread, he broke it, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. He said, this is my body just given for you. And the same way, he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that the conquest of evil was predicted right after Adam and Eve sinned. The conquest of evil began at the coming of Jesus. The conquest of evil was achieved at the cross. The conquest of evil was announced by the resurrection of Jesus. The conquest of evil is extended by the church. And the conquest of evil will be consummated at the second coming of Jesus. We're declaring that Christ has come. We're to live holy lives. Christ is coming again. We will be holy. Let us pray this prayer that our Lord Jesus has given to us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.